Uh, we're going to be facing some, some pretty hardcore verses in the Bible, and, uh, but we don't, we don't want to be a kind of church that just avoids the, the hard stuff and focuses on the easy stuff. We want to be a people who are wide open to God speaking through any part of the Bible and bringing any challenge that we need to hear. So uh, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you that you're among us. Thank you that you're with us and thank you that you love us. You know everyone in this room and I know you have a plan for their lives. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are carrying great fear today to come with anxiety and fear. I thank you, God, that you've brought them today to set them free from their fears. God, I know some people are carrying deep secrets, secrets that are crippling them and have for years. And I pray today they will know the freedom of God setting them free. I pray, God, there will be healing here today, that miracles would happen. I pray that those who do not yet know you would come to know you. God, be God among us. Do great things that only you can do. Thank you for the Bible, which I believe is your word to us and to the world. I pray as I share from the Bible that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, There was a book published by a guy called James Patterson and Peter Kim. It was entitled, The Day America Told the Truth. It was published in 1991. And basically, it was the it was, the, it was the publishing of a set of research that had been done and questions that had been asked from Americans. And the questions that were asked, the questions were pretty brutal questions. Basically, it was along the lines of, what would you do for $10 million? And the, here's, here's some of the findings. They found that 25% of people answered that they would abandon their entire family for $10 million. 23% of people in the survey said that they would become prostitutes for a week or more for $10 million. 16% of people said they would give up their American citizenship for $10 million. Isn't that weird that less people said that than the family? Isn't that weird? <laughs> wow, no, I can get rid of my family, but I'm not going to give up my American citizenship. Anyway, 16% said they would leave their spouses for $10 million. 10% said that they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. said they would kill a stranger for $10 million. And 3% said they would put their children up for adoption. Now, that's the one that surprised me. I thought that'd have been higher. But anyway, uh, but wow, thank God we're not Americans, eh? I mean, seriously, the British are so not like that, right? We are definitely, we would definitely wouldn't, I mean, our percentages would probably have been higher, okay? Right, Leithers? What's going on in your soul? You know, that, that survey just reveals that, wow, there's some stuff that goes down in people's souls. What is going on in your soul? What is your inner life like? Because the truth is, your future, your well-being, the impact you make in life, everything that comes out of your life starts in your heart. All the stuff that we've seen in the news in the last day or so happening in Paris came out of some people's hearts. All the good things that you see going on around the world that maybe you've experienced came out of someone's heart. What's going on inside? We're going to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And as we read these, this chapter, as we go into chapter 4 and into chapter 5, there are two shocking things that will stand out in the verses. I want you to look for them. They are, I mean, utterly shocking. 
they will, they're shocking because they challenge who we are on the inside. Two things. Look for them as we go through the verse. We're going to take a chunk of verses at a time. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. This, so what, who are these people? These were, these were the believers who had become believers. It was the early church. It was the gathering of people, maybe thousands of people by this point, who had started to follow Jesus. This is after Jesus has died on the cross and risen again. He's ascended back to the Father. His disciples are now on mission, and now the disciples are preaching, and crowds are gathering, and the church is growing. That's who it's talking about. It's talking about that church. All the believers were of one heart and one mind. They were united. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That's the shocking bit. That's, well, that's one of the shocking bits. That's shocking. But they shared everything. Say, shared everything. Ten of you said that nervously. I want you all to share that. Okay, one, two, three. They shared everything. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace, say grace. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And there were no needy persons among them. So in those verses, what's the fruit and what's the root? Can you see it in the verses? What's the fruit? They shared everything. What's the root of that fruit? Grace. They were impacted by God's grace. They were impacted by this incredible message of God's love. Someone wants to find grace, G-R-A-C-E, as, and this is a good definition, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a very good definition of grace. And this is the truth. They were impacted by this good news, that Jesus had died on the cross. Doesn't sound like good news, but it is good news. He had died on the cross and he had risen again. And the good news in that is this, that you get God's riches at Christ's expense. What we deserve is hell because of our sins. What we deserve is alienation from God because of our sins. But what happened is that Jesus died in our place. His expense, our benefit. His pain, our gain. That's the good news. And they were so impacted by that truth. And you can be impacted by that truth as well today. I don't know if you knew this, but someone died for you, and that someone happened to be God. That shows how incredibly special you are and how incredibly serious your sin is, that it took that to deal with your sin. But you can have your sin dealt with. You can know God forever. Trust in Jesus today. Don't live another day away from God. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace, impacted them not just in the way they viewed eternity. The whole idea of them being impacted by this idea that, wow, sacrifice was made so I could benefit, that changed the way they thought about how they interacted with others. We can sacrifice so others can benefit. I love what someone once said about the gospel. They said that the gospel isn't a door you once walked through. It's a room you now live in. It's not just the introduction to God. It's the way you from now on live in response to that introduction to God. You've been so impacted by this idea of God's riches at Christ's expense that now our lives, out of gratitude to God who's done that for us, become lives that emanate grace. It's the root 
that produces all the fruit. It's the reason they shared. They don't look at it because they had to. They didn't have to do anything to earn this. It was totally at his expense. But in response to that radical grace, they were now showering grace on others. And listen to what it says. There was no needy persons among them. That's incredible. There was, and I think it wasn't exaggerating. Now, by this point, if you read the chapter earlier, you discover there was probably about 15,000 people in the church now. 15,000 people. And it says, of those 15,000 people, there was no needy person among them. And by the way, that's a quote from the Old Testament. There was no needy person among them. It's directly from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 4, it says this, at the end of the seven years, you must cancel all debts. Verse 4, there will be no poor, there need be no poor people among you. It's, it's referring to this Old Testament principle called the year of Jubilee, where every seven years, debts would be canceled. It was an incredible thing that God had put in the whole infrastructure of the Jewish community, that every seven years, that even if you had got into financial debt and difficulty, that every seven years, the debts were canceled, clean slate, start again. It gave everyone the opportunity umpteen times in their life to start again. Isn't that great? What a great infrastructure. Wouldn't it be great if the government here put that in place for everyone in Britain? But anyway, this, so that whole concept of there was no needy among them, that came from an Old Testament principle that the idea of debts being cancelled every seven years were working towards the goal that there would be no needy people among them. And here we arrive in the book of Acts. Jesus has died and risen again. He's not just met our deepest spiritual needs, our ultimate need for God's. He's now produced and birthed a community that out of the overflow of his grace and love are now meeting needs in the community. Jubilee has happened. That There is no needy people among them. It's an incredible testimony. Um, Peter Wagner, in his commentary in the book of Acts, said this, as I understand God's kingdom economy, nothing is wrong with having rich people in the church. But there's something wrong with, about having poor people in the church. And I don't think he means they're not welcome. I think he means that the church should be a place where people can come and poverty is addressed and dealt with, not just in the deepest spiritual areas, but in the practical areas of life as well. Now, this is how the early church started. So it is absolutely no wonder that globally Christianity is known for its generosity. The church is the greatest success story of history. Let me give you some facts and figures. 25 years ago, 45,000 children died daily from starvation or disease related to mal malnutrition. Today, it's down to 19,000 daily. Who has been the major force in bringing about that change? The church. Medical centers, health clinics all around the world. Organizations like Compassion, World Vision, sponsoring children by the tens, hundreds, and thousands, giving them education when they didn't have education, providing health care. 25 years ago, 80% of the world's population uh, was illiterate. Today, it's down to 20%. Guess who is behind the literacy work? The church. A lot of it's fueled by the translation of the Bible. Tireless translators tra translating the Bible. People like Wycliffe Bible translators and other great people, other great organizations doing great works. Up until recently, 80% of all sub-Saharan education in African continent was done by the church. 
27 years ago, Habitat for Humanity started out with a vision to build houses for the poor. They've just finished their one millionth house. 25 years ago, one in six people on earth had access to clean drinking water. Today, it is down to one in 12. That is a 100% improvement in the situation. Wells have been dug, and guess what people are behind the digging of the majority of the wells on planet earth? The church of Jesus Christ, in its different forms, in its different places. Locally, what is the church doing? Huge amount. In 2015, the Cinnamon Trust did an audit, and they published this audit. You can Google Cinnamon Trust, and you can, it's the Cinnamon Trust Faith Audit. And they, they, they revealed this, that in the UK, churches in 2015, sorry, 2014, churches in the UK provided social action initiatives worth an estimated three billion pounds. That's three billion pounds the government didn't need to spend because the church is stepping up and filling the gap. Three billion pounds worth of work, supporting over 47 million people in the UK. You know what, you know what that equates to? It's 1.9 million volunteers giving 288 million hours, <laughs> 219,000 social action projects supporting 47 million people in the UK. It's incredible. An army, and you, you guys are part of that. The love of God, this God's riches at Christ's expense has motivated us to go meet needs. And church, I have to say, you are a generous church. I know you represent, we are one church in many locations, but across this church, in, in three locations now, you are a generous people. I, I asked Andrew, could you just give me an update? Andrew's our, our finance business manager guy in, in, on staff. I asked him for an update on last year's giving, and th- this, this is the st- statistics he gave me. We as a church, from the tithes and offerings that are given in every Sunday, we gave away as a church 18% of all our income. So that's, that's 18% of the entire turnover of the church was given away again, 10% of it to missions. Now, 18% accounts, accounts to one, sorry, 105,000 pounds. That's what was given away last year. 105,000 pounds given away. Half of it was given to missions and church planting. Half of it was given to local and international needs, whether it be the Indian Orphanage or the church in Gombe, or whether it be local initiatives like Destiny Street Impact, uh, the, the, stocking the food store, making sure food distribution happens, Destiny Angels, and also it includes personal gifts that, at the discretion of the pastoral team when people are going through hardship. I know some of you have been recipients of that. That The money that's given to the church we use to release, to meet needs and poverty and towns, different issues that are going on around us. You're a very, very generous church. It's incredible. Well done. Give yourselves a round of applause. I think, I think it's, it's an incredible generosity you guys express. And see, when it says there was no needy persons among them, wouldn't that be a fantastic goal for us to work towards? And here's the truth. If everyone gave tithe and offering of their income, we could be at the point where we would have an adequate resource by which we could say there is no needy person among them. Let's go on in the verses. Acts 4.34. From time to time, those who owned land, and this, right, this is where the challenge just ramps up. Who, who owns property here? Okay, some of you own property. So now, imagine, imagine this was you. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. 
I mean, that's radical giving. I know one couple, when, when I was a student in Glasgow, we were part of the church through there, and we were raising funds to, to buy our first church building in Glasgow. And I remember everyone was giving, and I remember one couple, and I, this is not common knowledge, but I know this, I know that they sold their house and gave the, the, the value of the house to the building fund offering. I mean, that's mental. That is mental. Now, what's impressing us here is, is not just their generosity, but there's something else in that verse that impresses you. They laid it at the apostles' feet. That's a massive act of trust. That's huge trust in someone's leadership. So, I have to tell you, uh, th- this is an incredibly generous church. We, we, I'm, I'm grateful to God that we have come to a place as a church where we're financially much stronger and robust compared to how we were a number of years ago. We're strong financially. And it is a reflection, first of all, of the grace of God working in our souls, but also it's an incredible act of trust that you folks, week in, week out, Sammy says, why don't you think about standing order? And you, you guys do that, and you give, and you, and you give over and above, and you, and you are generous. It's an incredible act of trust in, our, in us as leaders that you would say, we trust you with this money that we know and we believe that you will appropriate it responsibly. It's an incredible act of trust, and it actually really honors us, and I think it honors God. And I think God's blessing is flowing because of this generosity and this trust, and this is what was going, up, going on here. And then it goes on, and it Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, now highlights two people in particular. And this is where the next big challenge comes. Two people Luke deliberately highlights. I want to look at these two people, then I want to give us five things that that are different between their lives. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owns and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, that's the first person. Now, now look at the contrast to this next person. And I think Luke deliberately highlights these two people. Chapter 5, verse 1. And although this is a new chapter, you have to realize that chapters were added after the Bible was completed. I mean, chapters are helpful because they help you navigate your way through the text. But sometimes they come at a moment where it stops the flow. You might have been reading Acts chapter 4 and you say, okay, I've done my reading today and closed the book. Whereas actually what Luke is doing is he's contrasting two people. He's contrasting Barnabas and now he's going to contrast Ananias and the text flows even though the chapter changes. Now there was a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property just like Barnabas had just done. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but then brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, there was no requirement on anyone, first of all, to give, firstly, and secondly, to give the whole amount if they sold something. That's not the issue here. It's the deceit that's the issue. It said they laid him at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and you have kept some of the money that you received from the lands. Man, that's, that's hardcore. I remember, I remember one time I was in conversation with my neighbor, and my neighbor had been coming to church, and I, I was just chatting away, and I said, oh, we missed you at church. And, and, he, and he said, oh, I, this, 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 and this. And I just heard God clearly tell me what he just said to you was a lie. 
So I said to him, what you just said to me there was a lie. <laughs> oh, you freaked him out. Kept coming to church regular from then. <laughs> but seriously, it absolutely freaked him out. But I think, now it didn't go as bad for him as it did for this guy here in the Bible. But right here, Peter gets a word of knowledge and God told him that Ananias is pretending, look, I've sold everything and here's all the proceeds. Like it was a, like he's a martyr or something. He was trying to be up there with Barnabas. And he didn't need to do that, but he was putting on a show. And Peter perceived it and he, and he challenged him. And, and here's the truth. The church was growing. The church was growing really fast. You know, a few chapters ago, there was 120 people in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2, there was 3,120. Acts chapter 4, there's 15,000 people rapid church growth within a course of just a few months. How many people know that when there's church growth, Satan is not happy, right? Ground has been taken from Satan's dominion. The kingdom of light is infiltrating darkness. Satan does not like that. And what Satan does is he always mounts certain attacks on the church. And the attacks actually are predictable. They happen in every generation. And here's the three attacks we see. First of all, we saw in the last chapter, Satan caused it to be persecution, where the Jewish authorities rose up against Peter and John, and they tried to imprison them and threatened them, the Bible says. Now we see there's an attack against the church, but this time it wasn't from outside. This time the attack was from inside. Satan was manipulating things and trying to bring hypocrisy and deceit into the local church. Now, it doesn't seem like a serious thing, but little things, especially if they're satanically originated, bring huge negative consequences. And it's interesting, when you go to like the, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, God challenges and speaks to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And what's interesting, when you look at those seven churches in the book of Revelation, the challenges, to sit, they were all facing different persecution from outside, all of them. It was not an easy time to be a Christian. But it's interesting in those seven churches that five of them, the real danger they faced was not from the persecution from the Romans or from the Jews, the real danger that five of them faced was the, the deceitfulness and the sin that was going on on the inside. So Satan tried to attack the church from the outside. Now Satan tries to attack the church from the inside at a time of great growth. And if you go on to the, that's Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, you find that then Satan tried to attack the church through distraction. He tried to get them so busy with a good thing, the food distribution program, that they lost sight of mission. And so, so we see Satan has these subtle attacks. And here we see the attack came on the inside. I remember one time, it was just, just about 2008, just before we bought our Gorgie building, the church had, you know, in 2003, we bought this building. We'd grown, we'd filled it once, we filled it twice, we filled it three times. We knew we needed a bigger building. We bought Gorgie. How many people know that's taking grounds in a city? Okay, and it was strategic, and it was it was taking ground for the kingdom of God, and the devil wasn't happy, and I was aware of that, and we were all praying. Anyway, one night I got home that night, and my mind was a mush. My mind was tormented with dark, dark, to be honest, lustful, um, prostitution, pornographic, dark thoughts. I, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't know where it was coming from. My head was a total mush couldn't get to sleep until about two in the morning. I managed to eventually get to sleep. Anyway, I woke up first thing in the morning 
to pray. My head was still reeling. I had no idea what was going on. I got out of my bed. I went down, walked outside my house, just walking up and down my driveway, praying and asking God, God, help us, help me. I'm struggling. What's going on here? Where's this all coming from? And as I was standing there, I've got a hedge alongside of my driveway. As I looked down under the hedge, and I don't even know how it caught my eye. It was so small, a tiny little piece of paper, just like that. And I went down and reached down and picked it up. And it opened up, and this piece of paper, on this piece of paper, was a, a phone number and a, fo- a photograph of a prostitute and details about getting in touch and this little yellow piece of paper. I thought, what? And then as I looked along the driveway, along the hedge, at one meter intervals all the way along the hedge, tucked underneath were these little folded up pieces of paper, almost with exactly the same stuff on everyone. And I suddenly realized, whoa, that's witchcraft. And then I was relieved. It's like I was strangely encouraged. <laughs> I thought, that's where that came from. Good. Okay. I'm really relieved about that. First thing I did that morning was tell Angie about it all. And I phoned Andrew Owen, to whom I'm accountable, and said, Andrew, this was the battle I faced. This is what I found. Can you pray for me? Now, what's that? What's that all about? Okay. Well, someone knows where I live. So it's probably someone in the church. I'm serious. It probably was someone or is someone who comes to the church or was, was. It probably was someone who was trying to infiltrate the ranks and not, not in some overt way, but in some very subtle way. It is through witchcraft. Satan will try and infiltrate churches, especially at strategic moments, try and infiltrate churches. And that's exactly what's going on here. I hope you enjoyed that weird testimony. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, this is Peter speaking to Ananias still, and he says, did it belong to you before it was sold, or after, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? See, when he said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? What you need to understand is, some people look on in these passages in, in the early chapters of Acts and think, well, that's just communism. You know, it's common property and sharing and all this. That's just communism. It wasn't communism. Here, Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, it wasn't common ownership. People owned their own stuff. So it was yours. You made a choice to sell it. No one asked him to sell it. It was his choice. And secondly, going on, in fact, later on in Acts, Acts chapter 12, verse 12, Mark's mum owned her own house. And that's where they had this prayer meeting in Acts chapter 12. So people still owned property. It wasn't like everyone did this. Just some people were doing this. And secondly, Peter says, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, this wasn't imposed on people, now give your houses. This was people out of G-R-A-C-E wanting to express their love because of the huge sea of need they saw among them in this early church. They wanted to make a difference, so they gave generously. Ananias' sin wasn't anything to do with the amount that he gave, nothing to do with that at all. It's nothing to do with, all right, if I sell something, I've got to give 100% to God. That's not the issue. The issue was Ananias' sin was the deceit, the hypocrisy, and the lie that lay underneath it. He was giving the pretense that he was giving everything, where actually he was giving a fraction of what he got. Let's go on in the verses, Acts chapter 5, verse 4. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Right, right there, in case you were wondering, that's the second shocking bit in the verses. Wow. Then when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happens. 
Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. You know, imagine coming back from church and saying, yeah, how was church? Oh, church was cool. Yeah, we had hundreds of people there. Ten folk got baptized. Few people became Christians. And yeah, yeah, two guys died during the offering. Ah, right. Fantastic. I mean, this is nuts. And then it's, and and by the way, they, they immediately buried him. In fact, do you know what you should do? Let's, stewards, can you take up the offering just now? Let's, let's see what we get now. Okay. <laughs> but they immediately buried him. And, and that was, that's exactly what Jewish people even to this day do. As soon as someone died, there's, you don't wait for a burial, you immediately bury the body. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in. Uh-oh. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the lands? Yes, she says, that is the price. Then Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her outside her, hus- her husband's. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these events. Wow. I mean, this, this book, the Bible, right? It's not lightweight. It is an 18. It is hardcore. You would agree. There are verses like this that we read, and there's not one person in the room, not one of us thinks, okay, that's okay. I mean, all of us are rattled by verses like that. And that's what the Bible's like. In fact, that's not the only time the Bible does this to us. <laughs> if you've read the Bible, you will know of many times where you come across things and you see some of the judgment calls that God makes and you see some of the, the kind of sudden like, pow! And you think, wow! Sometimes you think, God, you're too strict. Other times we think, God, you're too lenient. Anyone had those emotions when you're reading through the Bible? Sometimes you think, no, God, that was wrong. And then you say, no, God, you should have zapped them, right? And whenever it's your situations in life and someone's wronged you, you want God to do the zapping thing, okay? Whenever it's you, oh no, be lenient, God, okay? But right through the Bible, we, f- we face this constant dilemma. And, you know, actually, this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is God-inspired. If, this was, if the Bible was man's invention, we would have come up with some tame God, some tame God that we were in control of and we felt secure with. And we certainly wouldn't have portrayed ourselves as sinners deserving of eternal judgment, right? That, oh yeah, I'll come up with this book. It's going to be really popular. <laughs> you know, that is not the content you would put in the book. And yet that's what the Bible says. It is God's book. It's inspired by God. And what we find is in the Bible, you find some people they die suddenly and they die young. And you think, wow. And when you face a situation where you know someone who dies young, you think, well, was that God's judgment? Don't super spiritualize these things because it doesn't always mean that. Or we face situations in the Bible where, um, you know, people are sinning and doing terrible things and God lets them off with it. And it seems like they live a long life. In fact, even in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, you see David complaining, God, how is it that the wicked seem to be prospering? And, you know, we're the righteous people and we're finding it hard going. So the Bible doesn't try and cover these things up. It doesn't try and mollycoddle them. 
in the Bible, you're given this raw, incredible depiction of a God who is an awesome God and a true God and a just God. But listen to what the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16. How do you resolve it? How do you work with a God like that? How do you work with a book like this? 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Our judgment is purely based on observation, externals. To some degree, we can judge most, but not really. Only God is able to truly know the hearts of man. And therefore, only God alone is qualified to ultimately make these judgment calls. It says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow. So I would, this, is how I, this is how I deal with the Bible and the God of the Bible. I assume he's always right. I assume he's always good. I know he is totally just, 100% loving, and completely faithful. I don't ever doubt that. I don't doubt that when I came across Bible verses that seem to suggest otherwise. And I don't doubt that when I go through circumstances in life which seem to suggest otherwise. I know he is true. Let every man be a liar. Let God be true. This is true. God is true. And I work with him that way. You know, the closest we've seen to this Ananias and Sapphira situation happening was, uh, as you know, we have an orphanage in India. And a number of years ago, after Ivan had built the orphanage, the guy who was running the orphanage on the grounds in India, a lovely old man, he died suddenly. And it which is a tragedy because who was going to look after these orphans? It got worse because the guy's brother, who was an alcoholic, decides at that point, okay, that land will now be mine. And he was all for kicking the orphans off the lands, and he was taking Ivan and the organization to court to get the land for himself. On the way to court, he drops dead. Poof. Wow, he's messing with orphans. And the Bible says that God is a defender of the weak. True story. Okay, so let me just highlight for you five contrasts. I think Luke has deliberately highlighted two people, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Ananias. And I think he's highlighted these to show the contrast. So let me, in closing here, give you five contrasts between Ananias and Barnabas. Number one, Barnabas wanted to please God, Ananias wanted to please people. In the verses it says that Peter said to Ananias, why have you conspired together against the Holy Spirit? Conspired. What does that mean? It means that they talked about this. And here's, here's exactly what I think happens. I think they saw how Barnabas had sacrificially given, and the apostles had changed his name to be Barnabas, and they'd given him recognition. And they looked on and thought, do you know what, honey? We would like that recognition. We'll give money. We'll just pretend that we gave the whole amount of money from the sale, just like Barnabas had done. And then we will also get that recognition. Now, for them, it was more important to get recognized by man. They were not so bothered about the fact that it was deceit in the sight of God. That's a problem. They wanted to buy recognition. They wanted the praise of man rather than the praise of God. Barnabas was not giving to be seen. Ananias was giving to be seen. That's the problem. 
They would rather be dishonest before God and appear generous to human beings. You know, apparently, in, one, in the build-up to one of the recent presidential elections in America, one of the American hopeful presidents was trying to win over the Christian voters. So he was being interviewed, and he had this script that he was ready to give. He was being interviewed about his faith, and he said, oh yeah, my f- favorite Bible verse is, and he meant to say John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Famous Bible. He thought, I'll, I'll throw that out there. The Christians will love that. But instead of saying John 3.16, because he didn't really know the Bible that well, he said John 16.3. And that's a very different verse. John 16.3 says, they do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So in public television, he said, yeah, yes, I have have great faith in God. My favorite verse is John 16.3. But see, what is important here is this. It's not how you appear to others is not the issue in life, but rather how do you appear to God? What's more important to you? How other people think of you or how God views you? John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, from the heart, the inner self, and in truth. For the Father speaks, seeks such people to be his worshipers. Second comparison. Number two, Barnabas lived to give, Ananias lived to get. It says in Acts 4, 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas' agenda was other people. That was his agenda. Whether it be through the words of encouragement he spoke, or whether it be through the money that he gave, or as you read on in the book of Acts, whether it be through the missionary journeys he went on, Barnabas was all about others. That was the theme of his soul. That was the reason for his life. God stirred that in him. It's called grace stirred him. He knew he was accepted, and now he wanted to share that grace with others. Ananias, however, his agenda was himself. And you think, that's weird. How could it be a self-agenda, Peter? Because he probably gave a large amount of money. But isn't it weird that when you've got resources, sometimes you use your resources to get something you want? And I think that's exactly what was going on here. There was a story one day about a, a gardener who grew an enormous carrot And so he took the carrot to the king and he said, my lords, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I wanted to present it to you as a token of my love and respect to you. The king was so touched and discerned the man's heart. So the gardener, as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you are already a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you so that you may enjoy more land to do gardening. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this. And he said to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses. And this horse is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. 
The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And the truth is this, Ananias and Sapphira, actually their big agenda wasn't to give. Their agenda was they wanted to buy the recognition of people. Their agenda was to get something for themselves. Jesus said in Acts 20, verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Is your agenda in life a take agenda? You take from every relationship, you take from every situation, you take from every opportunity, or is your agenda like the Lord Jesus, like Barnabas, a give agenda? And whether it's giving through friendship, giving in church, or giving in your family, with your time, with your money, with your words, you're just giving, giving, giving. Albert Einstein said, a life lived for others is a worthwhile life. The truth is, your life is not measured by its duration, but rather by its donation. What are you giving? What are you giving back? How is grace flowing through your life? The third contrast is that Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit, and Ananias followed a satanic thought. And this gets right under the skin of exactly what's happening here. It says about Barnabas later on in the book of Acts, Acts 11 verse 24, he, Barnabas, was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In Acts 3 verse 5, it says about Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept back some, uh, yourself some of the money you received from the land? The motive, the reason that Ananias had that thought wasn't just his own human corruption. According to Peter, he perceived that Ananias had embraced a satanic thought. Now, I know that we all have fallen thoughts, but there are times when Satan will intentionally, or demons will intentionally, sow a demonic thought into your soul, which, if embraced, will bring disaster to others around you or the church you live in, or the family you're part of, or those in your workplace. The satanic thought, even if the satanic thought in and of itself doesn't seem that sinister, it's the origin of where it came from will bear the bad fruit. Here's a couple of examples in the Bible. Listen, listen to this. 1 Corinthians Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1, Satan arose up against Israel and incited David too, right? I mean, you think he's going to say something terrible next. And here it is, da, 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 take a census, right? Not that evil. Take a census, count people. What a demonic thing to do, you know, right? I mean, it doesn't sound that evil, okay? But it's nothing to do with the activity. It's everything to do with who instigated the activity. We, I mean, we don't know in what way it was satanic. We don't know if it, whether it was a distraction. We don't know whether it was taking David away from something God wanted him to do. I don't know but it was a satanic thought. I mean, even look at the beginning of the time when God created mankind, Satan tempted Eve to eat some fruit, and the entire world fell. Even Peter himself, in a moment of deep sentiment, out of love for his master, Jesus, when Jesus was describing the cross and how all he was going to suffer in Jerusalem, Peter said to him, Matthew 16, 23, you know, not, it won't happen. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. 
His human sentimentality had made him vulnerable to taking a seed of a thought into his soul, which origin was Satan. You know, oftentimes the satanic thoughts come because of weaknesses you're carrying. Judas, the Bible says it's Satan put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But if you look at it, look in, the, look in the Gospels. What happened just before he went to betray Jesus? What happened? Here's what happens. He was complaining that a lady used up perfume that could have been sold instead. His issue was money. And it was the weakness that opened the crack in the door and Satan drove a wedge in the crack. What are your weaknesses? What are your vulnerabilities? What are your sentimentalities? None of them need to necessarily be evil in and of themselves. But the danger is you've got to guard yourself. It says in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Life is not what happens to you. Life is what flows from you. And everything comes from your heart. Everything comes from your heart. If your heart is soft before God and is saturated in truth and is yielded to the Holy Spirit, you're a safe person and good fruit will be born. If you are carrying, if you're allowing your weaknesses to dominate your soul and allowing yourself to carry bitternesses or issues or attitudes, and then all of a sudden you become a, you become a possibility, you become a landing grounds for negative, even satanic thoughts. The fourth contrast is Barnabas was secure in grace. Ananias was insecure. Acts 4.33, God's grace so powerfully worked in them all. Barnabas understood grace. He was impacted by grace. It made him a very secure person. Apparently, in the initial stages of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, in the early stages, they didn't put a safety net there. So there was... In the early stages, 23 men fell off the bridge to their death. You know, it's not very good health and safety. It really wouldn't go well if that happened at the fourth road bridge. 23 men fell off the... And at that point, they decided, maybe we should put a safety net up. Oh, yeah, great idea. So in the second half of the project, they installed a safety net. And what's interesting, in the second half of the project, two things happened. First of all, fewer people fell... Isn't it interesting when the net's there, less people fall? Because when you're relaxed, you're safer. And so only 10 people fell in the second, and they were safe. They, they bounced. And secondly, productivity went up by 20%. And here's the deal. When you know the God's got it, when you know that you are eternally saved, when you know you've given your life to Jesus who died for you and rose again, and that means you have eternal life, you're unconditionally accepted, not to do with your behavior, everything to do with his behavior. When you know that, it makes you a very secure person. You're not hankering after others, other things to make you secure. And furthermore, you become more efficient in life. The ultimate worry has been dealt with. I'm eternally secure. You have great security in life, and in death, and your productivity goes up. And ironically, you know, Ananias, the name Ananias actually means God is gracious. But Ananias is the one who hadn't grasped grace. He sought human approval. Why? I can only assume he didn't know God's ultimate approval. If you're someone who's going out constantly for human approval, it is the root that manifests the truth that you do not know how secure you are in God. And when you know how secure you are in God, it will make you secure 
around people. You become unrejectable. Not because you've got it all together and you've got this steely face. No, no. Because in your heart, you know God is totally and utterly, completely, eternally accepted you. Now, why is it oftentimes that girls who have had a, a bad relationship with their dad and they've had a, a, a negative experience, no closeness with their dad, that they sometimes grow up and they become the girls who are constantly looking for attention from men? Why? Because they didn't come to that place of security with their dad. It's not always the case, but oftentimes it is the case. And it can happen the other way around with guys, and it can happen in different ways and situations. But the truth is this, when you know you're secure in God, all of a sudden you become secure with human beings because God is your ultimate security. Listen, Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Listen, in whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, things have become clear on the inside. No need for hypocrisy. No need to pretend. There's just a clarity. Sins are forgiven. God knows everything about me, and he's forgiven everything about me. So that's okay. There's an inner honesty comes. Fifthly and finally, Barnabas went on to see long-term success. Ananias didn't. (laughs) His life was cut short. Long-term impact. Barnabas mentioned over 20 times in the rest of the book of Acts. He went on to become one of the heroes in the book of Acts. We'll see him many times in the weeks to come. Barnabas, he, he, he went on to become a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. He and Paul did the first missionary journey together, started planting churches, started expanding the church. Where does it all start for Barnabas? Where did it all start? His inner life. That's where outward success always begins, every time, on the insides. You look at King David's, the most successful king Israel ever had. Incredible. He became the the great one who received this promise from God that one of his family line would be the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. King David, how did he start out? The guy that killed Goliath, the guy that reigned, the guy that did such great things in Jerusalem. How did David start out? Well, it all started when no one else could see, when only God could see. God saw. God saw this guy's heart when he was a shepherd, taking that responsibility so seriously before no one else saw, but before God, God saw. So he protected those sheep. And furthermore, up in those hills, when no one else was watching, he had his harp out and he was worshiping the Lord. Look at the Psalms of David in the Bible. He was a worshiper. This is a guy who God had sent a stage in his heart. And I tell you, your outward success always will come from your inner success. That's why it says in the New Testament that, beloved, I pray that you will prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. It always starts here and flows out. Life is not what happens to you. Life is always what flows from you. So you want to be like Barnabas or Ananias. You want to live for the people's approval or God's approval. You want to live with security and grace or insecurity in and of yourself. You want to live take, treating God seriously or do you want to live treating God lightly? You want to have a long-term legacy and success or short-lived success? The chapter ends, sorry, this passage ends in in verse 11, and it says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It says in Philippians 2.12, 
continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is both our father and the the judge of the world. He's the one who's forgiven all our sins and yet is so holy that sinners who haven't dealt with the sins will be condemned forever. Man, we tread carefully in the presence of God. We delight in His presence. We know His total security in Christ. But at the same time, we have deepest respect and awe of this great God that we love and serve. Let's pray to Him right now. God in heaven and God who is among us right now. God, we love you, God. God, thank you for this Bible. Thank you, God, for the... Man, it's a challenging book, God. But God, I thank you that you are revealed in this book as the God who does not tolerate sin and yet the God who died for sinners so we could be saved from sin. God, it's an incredible book and we've just read a very challenging passage it challenges us because it exposes us. It challenges us to reflect on our inner condition. We see Barnabas and we see the generosity of the early church, and we're challenged deeply by that. And at the same time, we see Ananias and we see the hypocrisy and the subtlety of the lie that he had embraced. And we're challenged by that. So God, just now, we bear our souls to you. We lift our souls to you, God, And God, we say to you, God, we want to have true hearts before you. We want to be those who live with an inner honesty before God. We don't want to have a a double life, God. We want to be deeply honest before God. We want to let our hearts be true in your sight. And God, we want to be those who are secure like Barnabas was and liberated like Barnabas was and loving and giving like Barnabas was. We want to be sons of encouragement whose lives are not about getting, but we want the theme of our souls to be give. How can I bless that person? How can I encourage that person? How can I spend time with that person? How can I give money there? I pray that we will be rivers of givers, that our lives will leave a legacy that will bring glory to God because the theme of our souls has been generosity. Okay, each one of you, including myself, let's just, in His presence, Pray our response to God, our great God. Talk to Him about what you've heard. Talk to Him about what you have. What what decisions are you making in His presence today? Welcome, Holy Spirit. You've just heard all our prayers. And I pray, move among us just now. In your resurrection power, Lord Jesus, move among us. Lord Jesus, in your name, I pray, heal sick bodies just now. In your name, deliver people from darknesses that are enshrouding them just now. 
in the name of Jesus, bring freedom to those who have been living with deep insecurities and fears. In Jesus' name. Maybe today you have not yet decided to become a follower of Jesus. You want to be eternally secure and safe in relationship with God. God wants that for you. And in this moment, this is your opportunity to make your connection with God. And in this moment, I encourage you, if that's you today and you're saying, Peter, I want to know God. I want to be secure with him forever. Then this is your moment to put your trust in Jesus, the the Savior of the world, who died for you and rose again. And if that's you, I invite you just to pray this prayer with me just now, one line at a time, under your breath. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Jesus, thank you, you died for me on the cross. You rose again on the third day. Thank you, you are alive right now. I believe you died so that sinners could be forgiven. I am a sinner and I ask for that forgiveness right now. I make a choice today, Lord, to follow you now for the rest of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me as your child.